This is CliffCentral.com. You know what show it is. You click the button on your phone. And we are back. We are back. I'm not dead. I'm surprised you didn't get arrested at the airport, like the Tulsi twins, your your cohorts. Yeah, I, well, it, my cohorts. <laughs> they uh, they're going with the um, we're. It's not that we're innocent. It's just that your search was illegal. I see that's their their, their defence at the moment. A valid defence, but nevertheless, how was Syria? Uh, Paris was great. Oh, fantastic. Um, supposedly. Uh, uh, Syrian refugees on the streets, but uh, you say they're not Syrian refugees. No, they they gypsies. They they from originally from India two thousand years ago, and no one can kill them off. <laughs> Great, because that's what we should be doing, killing them off. Um, okay, so <laughs> uh, now we started with such a light uh, tone to the show. Uh, freedom of speech, something we talk about quite often. Yeah, it only works if it's um, against your enemies and not your friends, it appears, in this country at least. Yeah, and also if if we like what you're saying. I mean, uh, we had uh, a previous guest on our show have had to endure some serious trolling recently uh, because uh, I don't want to get too involved in it. We can do it another time. But basically because they said something other people didn't like. Uh, and it had to be it had to be had to be brought up and dredged through the mud. Uh, so, with that said, so Mark uh, Mark Oppenheimer is with us. Uh, Mark is an advocate. Did I get that right? Anything else? Uh, general troublemaker. Yeah. Explain yourself, Mark. What What do you do? I mean, an advocate. So obviously, you just read lots of papers each day. Um, but what are your your special interests in terms of litigation? So one of the wonderful things about being at the bar is that you get to deal with a variety of matters. So I spend a lot of time suing the city of Joburg. Um, I, I basically say that my practice is built on state incompetence. So thank goodness the state doesn't good, do a good job because it keeps me in bread and butter. So you're like a multimillionaire. Do you want to sponsor the show? <laughs> we need a sponsor. Why not? An advocate as a sponsor. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we'll take money from most people, but not from lawyers. I mean, really. Yeah, it's tainted. Yeah, you know. And they're lawyers. <laughs> they always expect their pound of flesh. Come on, go, come on, Ramon. <laughs> I'm a legal consultant, not a lawyer, so it doesn't apply to me. But nevertheless, so Mark, um, I mean, we, we've been friends for a while now, and I understand that you 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 are quite a you quite liberal on freedom of speech. Why why should freedom of speech be something to to aspire to, so to speak? Like, what what is what is the relevance of it in a in a democracy such as ours? So free speech is a foundational value. Without free speech, everything else collapses. It's important to be able to express your ideas in an environment without coercion so that you can challenge the existing status quo, that you can shout against injustices, that you can explore a range of innovative ideas in science, in the arts, um, in politics. You know, if, a, if the state clamps down on that or society clamps down on that, you're lost. Um, and South Africa didn't used to be a place where you had free speech. You had a state-controlled um, broadcaster. You had very few papers. You had intimidation of journalists, um, things that remind us of what's happening now. Was this last year? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're talking about apartheid. 
Sure. Oh, yeah. sorry, sorry. And, but and, hard, but and, hard to tell and, the difference. And every day. <laughs> yeah, and every single day. Well, yeah, the, the point of free speech is, is holding power to account in a way for me um, because every single aspect of what we call liberal rights now, uh, gay marriage, things like that, if you spoke about that 50 years ago, you'd be sent to prison or or disbarred from your job or, or whatever the case might be. But Not even 50 years. So right. gay sex was illegal in South Africa until 1993. In the States, until more recently than that, you know, it took a challenge in the Supreme Court to go and challenge that kind of thing. So, and one of the ways that you change minds is by expressing your ideas freely. So I think one of the reasons why there's been such acceptance of gay marriage in the States is because there's art that deals with gay love and that people are exposed to that and they can think and they can change their minds. You know, speech often starts off feeling very uncomfortable and repugnant and people say you, sh- you can't say that it's offensive it's pornographic mm. and then they get exposed and they think about it and they debate it and their, their views shift um, you know often for the better what, what, what about the arguments uh, you know our listeners often want us to, to uh, speak to the other side um, what about the argument from the other side that uh, if you've got this kind of identity politics stuff if you've got power uh, then you, your sort of speech should be limited. We had, um, uh, Pierre de Fosse, uh, recently commenting on this UCT, uh, debacle, which I'm sure we can get into. Mm. Uh, but the, the problem I had with, with what he said and, and, um, uh, Justin from McCarthy from our last, um, uh, podcast actually wrote, uh, some good stuff on this. He, he ventured into the identity, identity politics thing in basically saying, why would you invite this person to speak? You need to think about who you invite to speak on a campus because essentially people with power should have less right to speak now than people without power. Um, so can we just go into why that is bullshit? Absolutely. So I think one of the amazing things about current technology is that the level playing field has shifted so much. So often it's those that um, – feel powerless and might not have money or might feel from their marginalized community that are able to punch far above their weight because they can jump online, you know, they can grab that loud hailer hmm. and Black Lives they, Matter. Yeah, sure. You're talking about a small group of people who can say something that's dramatic and they can garner a lot of attention. So I think the idea that, you know, in a society where you've got a small number of newspapers and that's your only channel for expression, the idea that there are big imbalances of power in the marketplace of ideas might hold weight. That's no longer the case. I think it's very easy for people to express their ideas. And given that there is this balance of power, we need to allow everyone to speak. Um, and then what we do is we rebut them. It's also important to point out, though, that the regressives um, who hold these quite repugnant ideas and are a small minority and want to silence others, we need to point that out in, in speech. Not by removing their platform and saying, mm. you know, you don't get to participate anymore. We don't like what you're doing. You sure. can do that once they start doing violence you know, abhorrent things. But when it's merely speech, then we must allow it and we must allow them to be foolish. Hmm, we fight speech with speech. Exactly. And there's a fantastic example of that now. So um, Ayanda Mabula, who I think is a, a national hero in South Africa, paints a series of depictions of Jacob Zuma, uh, the latest of which uh, is utterly fabulous. You know? <laughs> You've got... It's him rimming uh, Atul Gupta, I think. Yes. And they're both in the cockpit of a plane... Uh, and they've got their hands off the levers and uh, they're about to fly into another plane. And there's the ANC flag in the background. Yeah. And you can see this is the sort of situation that South Africa is facing, right? It's a great way of having politics and art merge. Well, it's a metaphor for yeah. the country as a whole. 
And so you have this outrage in the sense that, you know, we, we've got to respect power. We've got to respect these, you know, authoritarian figures like the president uh, or elderly men or whatever it is. Mm. Um, and so that, you know, the family gets upset and our dignity has been impinged. Um, and one of the things that I, when I saw this sort of attack and there was attacks to try and, you know, take him to court and remove the painting, things that happened with the spear. Um, and immediately I broadcast to my, to my friends, listen, lawyers, we need to unite. We need to provide this guy with protection because it's important to allow this kind of speech to be out there. And then today, uh, there's this fantastic bit of counter dialogue. So there's um, a painting of Helen Zilla and Mamuzi Mamani and um, James Self. And they're all uh, in the nude and sort of shown in some sort of uh, degrading stance. Uh, oh, and what <laughs> degrading is a – look, I, the rimming is, 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 is equally, yeah, I suppose. Uh, so just to describe it, if you haven't seen it, it's essentially um, – uh, I think James Self and, and Helen Zilla on a ox wagon cart, um, both of whom are naked. Um, Helen Zilla with legs spread wide open. There's an image for you guys. Um, and uh, then Musi Maimani is uh, pulling the ox cart, essentially. Um, he's also naked, and obviously the genitalia of everyone are, you know, quite visibly shown. Uh yeah. Okay. So, so that's the description. So, if you want to fight fire with fire, do that. Paint isn't going to hurt anyone, besides some feelings. Yeah. And you don't have to endorse the work either. So, isn't it an interesting study though in like in the reactions of, of the different sides? So, uh, maybe I, I'm incorrect, but uh, to the spear there was this massive reaction. We had a city press editor essentially self-censoring. Uh, she's subsequently been called essentially, um, you know, the, the second Madonna, um, for, for, since she's resigned for all other things she's done. But, but I think that will be a tarnish on her reputation. Something she admits um, freely. So Farrell says that that was one of the worst decisions she ever made. Yeah. Um, and she regretted right. and she was under enormous pressure. Cool. So at, at least it's an admission of, of a fault and, mm. and, and cool. We, we can then move on from it. But, um, we had that. We had, uh, demonstrations outside the gallery, uh, which, were not quite peaceful in a way. Um, we had eventually the, the art was destroyed. Uh, we, uh, the artist, uh, Mr. Mabula that you're talking about, um, he has also, I think, faced quite a lot of scrutiny and a lot of criticism, um, in the public sort of domain. This painting gets released on the other side, um, doing exactly the same thing to the opposite team, essentially. Uh, and I haven't seen much of the, we have to stop this. We must destroy this art. No, but I, I received the best response on Twitter today. So I, I made a series of tweets about, I can't wait for Zwenzi Mavavi to be outside. Oh yeah, I saw Kenny, that. that Kenny Kunene's house, who bought this painting of the DA, to, to be outside Kenny's house and to protest. I can't wait for the Films and Publications Board to rate this painting 18 as they did for the spear. Yeah. I can't wait for all these things to happen. And then, Someone with an ANC logo, AVI, on Twitter says, no, dude, it's freedom of speech. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, that's what they told me. I said, oh, delicious. But, yeah, the lack of reaction is quite, is quite amusing Very to telling. Me. So I think it's important, as a liberal, you actually have to care about that abstract value and you apply it uniformly. Mm. What you'll find is that regressives don't. They don't care about uni universal rights and principles and applications in an equal manner. This is a difficult thing, though. We were chatting off air before, and, and I think in, in general with regards to freedom of speech, people find it difficult to apply it uniformly. Um, I think it takes quite a mature approach um, to let someone you don't particularly agree with or you dislike or who hates you, who openly hates you, um, say things that 
um, you feel are terrible, um, it, it takes quite a, quite a mature approach, as I said, to, to, to kind of get there. We uh, use a specific example around, um, you know, anti-Semitic stuff, uh, questions around, whether whether it is or isn't, but but often it's it, stuff is shut down with that as the reasoning, and I would argue that sometimes I think uh, I think it it could be shut down prematurely because you know we 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 want to shut down what is seen as hate speech, and we can get into hate speech as well. Um, uh, so I, I do think it takes quite a quite a mature um, sort of. Progressive. Uh, I don't know who's progressive anymore, um, but it required a mature progressive approach. I'll tell you one of my favorite stories. So, about a week around the time of the spear, okay, uh, a painting comes out of Stephen Harper, the then Prime Minister of Canada, and he's depicted in the nude with a dog on his lap, okay, but his genitals are fully shown. And so, the office of the Prime Minister releases the following statement. They say, Stephen Harper is outraged by this painting. <laughs> It is completely a falsehood, um, and we everyone has got to know that this is not an accurate representation of Stephen Harper. He is not a dog person. He's a cat person. Seriously? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. That's what they and said. That's what they said, and that's, that's the way you deal with it. You laugh it off. You know, everyone says you can take a knock on the chin in style, you know, and that's, that's how you respond. And I think one of the problems that we have in South Africa is that people are so fragile when it comes to speech. We immediately rush to saying, silence it, stop it, you know, my, my pain, my, my angst, as opposed to sort of dealing with things with a little bit of humor. You know, Zapira is one of those guys who's for such a long time been really good at, you know, helping South Africa look at things with a funny lens. Mm. Um, and it was devastating for me to see someone like that cowed by all this pressure, this intense pressure the to organ, say that you need to repent. It. Yeah. Quite yeah. Mm. Um, and I think, one of the things that's important, so I'm from a philosophy background, and when assessing arguments, we take this approach that you are as charitable as possible with your opponent's arguments. So if your opponent gives a bad argument for a position, your job as a good philosopher is to buff it up, to turn it into the best possible argument. So you're charitable in your approach. And that way that when you're jousting with the argument, you're not jousting with the straw man. Mm. You're jousting with something of substance. Mm. And I think when we relate to each other, it's important to be charitable in our approach. So to understand someone's words in that charitable light. Look, you know, if someone is saying, you know, I'm, I'm coming for your land and I'm going to come and hunt you down and kill you and I want to exterminate you, you know, I don't know how much charity you can have. He's being clear about his principles. You can ask and you can say, what about this and what about that? You can try and get a sense of the position. Um, but I do think it's important for us to not assume the worst of each other when we have, when we, when we dialogue. Well, I think that, that that's what the progressives do, right? They, they look at, at a tweet and immediately call it racist or, or sexist or whatever other word they want to use. Yeah. Um, but, but what do you think about, about freedom of speech in terms of the so-called, um, so like comedy against so-called oppression minorities? Mm. Um, so for example, a good example of this would be, Casta Semenya, right, making fun of her and her biology. It's freedom of speech. I mean, do you think it should be less regarded because she's a minority? Well, not, I don't know about persecuted minority, but <clears throat> excuse me, but, but a minority nevertheless. Do you think so? There's been this move to try and redefine how what is she a minority, is. just so we are clear as, on that, as an intersex person. Oh, but she doesn't claim to be. Well, biologically, she is, I think. 
But okay, say, okay. Uh, say trans people, fine. That's sure. Trans, trans sure. people, they're on a minority. They like to commit suicide quite a lot. Um, is it fine to make fun of them? Or so you're dropping or the bombshell today. <laughs> well, they do. 40% suicide rates. Anyway. I know. I know. <laughs> All right. Sorry. So there's been this move to say that satire is about uh, critiquing the powerful. Yeah, punching up. Yes, you must punch up and you can't punch down. That's not a traditional understanding of what satire is. Satire has traditionally been about poking fun at the foolish. And the foolish may be in positions um, not of power. And I think it's important to have that freedom to, you know, to laugh and to jest. Um, we, we might, we don't have to like all speech to allow it. So someone can, can crack a, a joke that we think is incredibly offensive. Um, and we don't like it and we think it's emotionally hurtful. That doesn't mean we ought to have a criminal sanction for it. So, you know, if someone wants to target a minority group in a way that's hateful, call them out for being hateful with counter dialogue. But, you know, there's no need to go and, you know, call for them to be, uh, you know, removed from their employment, to be dragged through the mud, uh, you know, to be physically assaulted, to be tossed in, bar- in, in prison, to be fined 150,000 rand in an equality court. You know, you, you can point out why, why speech is offensive. You can try and engage in a dialogue with someone. You can try and work out what they mean as well in a sort of way. Um, but I don't think you ought to grant particular exceptions because someone is from a minority group. But I think what we ought to have a proper discussion about is what is this hate speech thing? Yeah. Okay. So so before you go there, um, we mentioned on a previous show with regards to, to hate speech, you know, our constitution makes freedom of speech a very uh, important priority. Uh, and then we subsequently have the Equality Court uh, and sort of legislation. Yeah, the Equality Act, I think it's called. <clears throat> yeah, the, the sort of acronym for it is PAPUDA. The promotion and protection of equality. Right. Yeah. So, so we have this, we have that, that act and we have, uh, the equality court who sort of, uh, oversees this and, and I deals with the justice around that, I would assume. Um, but when I read through that, it seems to take hate speech too far. So, um, it, it, it makes freedom of speech a, a bit of a joke in my opinion. So, from your perspective, both on as a heavy free speech advocate and as an advocate, um, give us a bit so, more. I think the first thing to understand is that we have a supreme law of the land in this country, and that's the Constitution. Okay. That legislation is subordinate to the Constitution. So if there's an inconsistency between an act and the Constitution, the Constitution triumphs. But often in order to show that, it has to be tested in a court. What's interesting about the Equality Act is that when it deals with um, – with restrictions on free speech, it does so in a much in a broader way than what the Constitution says. So, first, I'll just have a brief s- statement about what the Constitution says. So, it's it protects all sorts of speech. It talks about artistic speech, um, freedom of the press, uh, a wide ambit of political speech as well, and then places three restrictions. First is no propaganda for war. Okay. The second is if speech constitutes an incitement to imminent violence not protected and the third is that if it's advocacy of hatred on one of four listed grounds which is race ethnicity gender or religion and it causes an incitement constitutes an incitement to harm Mm. so it drops two things there in that last bit so it's harm not violence and the imminency requirement is reduced so the classical liberal approach wouldn't have something like that requirement It it would stick at b which says that you've got this incitement to imminent violence Mm. And that's the, the case when you restrict speech. So 
a classic example is um, you're upset with um, with factory owners. You say factory workers are exploited, factory owners are exploitative, and they um, take advantage of their staff. And we should rise up and do something about it. So the liberal position is that's a perfectly acceptable idea to express, um, but it matters where you express it. So if you express it in a newspaper, there's no threat of imminent violence. If you express it to an angry mob holding pitchforks and lighters outside of a factory, uh, there's a very good chance that that will lead to the factory being burnt down. In that situation, we might want to limit speech. Or in Rwanda, when you've got um, calls people to go and you know burn down their neighbors' houses and chop them up into little pieces and people are doing it, there's good reason to not protect that speech and to block those radio signals. Now, what the Equality Act does is it enlarges the framework. It doesn't just talk about harm. It talks about hurt, so emotional hurt. It also enlarges the categories of people that get protection. So section – just Sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that last category, which is uh, based on race, gender, ethnicity, uh, and religion. Ethnicity and religion. The important part, I think, is what people read is the first sentence and then leave out the second sentence. Um, because I've often, in sort of arguments around freedom of speech, people go, but you can't have freedom of speech that harms um, those four categories, that, that aims to sort of harm those four categories. But the second part of that sentence is and. Uh, what's the sort of wording? Constitutes an incitement to harm. So let me explain. Let me unpack that a little bit. So there's a distinction to be drawn between hateful speech. Mm. So I say hateful things about you or about a particular class of people. So fuck I use or, racial. Fuck all white people. Yeah, fuck all white people. Okay. Um, or, you know, white people are dirty dogs, something like that. Right? Yeah, cool. Now, an incitement implies that what I do is I call upon third parties to invite harm upon the targeted group. So I say, white people are dirty pigs, and you know what we need to do to pigs? The same thing we do in slaughterhouses. Okay? Mm-hmm. Slit their throats. So I say that there's a call to action, um, which is going to result in a harm. Okay. So that's where you have the restriction. So merely hateful speech uh, is protected, at least in terms of the constitutional order. So we think that's, that's an odd thing, right? Why would we allow hateful speech? There's a couple of good reasons. The one is it's important to know in your society who holds these hateful views, that you can point them out. You can say, oh, that guy is a Ku Klux Klan member. You know, look at him in his white hood. You know, and then you can decide how you want to deal with them accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um, not that you, you know, invite you know, harm upon them. Um, but you might not want to do business with them. But they're, they're good examples of the case of um, – I don't want to get the naming wrong. But the guys who had that sort of conspiracy to blow up a whole bunch of things across South Africa. The brutal one. Yeah, there you go. So <laughs> sorry, I didn't want to get it incorrect. Um, they the, – the reason from my understanding is the reason they were kind of caught out is because these were people who were known to have these kind of uh, views um, because they had made these views public through their speech. Um, so they were being watched for that reason. Uh, and in the end, that resulted in, uh, well, it averted essentially a, a catastrophe. Uh, sure. Because they would have blown things up and hurt people. But not everyone that expresses a hateful view is going to go and try and blow up a building. No, no, absolutely. So, so I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying the, the, they were allowed to have the speech, but what was stopped was their action afterwards from from kind of uh, whatever they were planning, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. But they were allowed to have the speech. And if they weren't allowed to have the speech, then we may never have known that they were having these thoughts <laughs> and we may not have stopped them. Uh, it, uh, sort of my attempt at one example of showing 
where well, we, we drive dangerous ideas underground then. Mm. So, so, and, it, exactly. and it feeds into that. So they say, ah, you know, the state won't allow you to express the ideas because they're afraid of them. They must be true. They must be good ideas. You know, the thing about bad ideas is when you put them, you know, in the light of a marketplace and people get to interrogate them, you can see them for what they are. You can see that they're bad ideas. And so hateful ideas don't last very long when they're allowed to be exposed. So that's one thing. The other one is that there's a distortion in language that happens. So Stalin was very good at being able to censor um, all sorts of texts that are political content by mislabeling them. So he'd say, this is pornographic. And no one likes pornography. No one will stand up for pornography. Um, no one likes anything that's racist. So you know, when you have a movement saying Zoom must fall, you call it racist. People say, oh, well, we can't allow racist speech. Mm. And so when you allow for that kind of mischaracterization of things, it silences critiques. It has this chilling effect, and people feel that not only is it not protected, but there might be a criminal sanction or a financial sanction. I better not say anything. That's very dangerous. Mm. So it's important that we allow for things on this on the spectrum of that may be considered hateful. We can interrogate them, but not all of them are hateful. Mm. Uh, not all of them are racist. I, I think we've got this troubling time in South African history where we've got an, a neo-McCarthyism. So under McCarthy, people kept lists of you know who was a member of the Communist Party, and they were blacklisted, and they were shunned, and they were kept out of employment. Mm. People were told to rat on each other. Um, you had these proper witch hunts for it. I mean, it's sort of there's a there's a play written about it comparing it to Salem witch trials. Um, and we've now, instead of calling people communists, we now call them racists, even if they're not necessarily so. But it's such a powerful word. It's the, the card that keeps on giving, you know, and the problem is that we allow it to be that. So and when it comes to political discourse, the best way to get someone to shut up is call them a racist. Yeah. And I think it's important for and us people to... People get mad when you don't respond to that. I, I think Ramon and I are, are relatively good examples because neither of us give a shit about being called racist anymore. Um because it, it just it, well it's lost all meaning frankly uh, firstly when, when you aren't it, it doesn't have meaning to start off with but the other thing is every time you say something people just react to it in that way well I mean someone told me once the, the best thing in air quotes about being called a racist you can only be called it once and you know it's not true so it doesn't matter what what people call you anymore and and, and this particular person where's the 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 racist mark with pride because <laughs> he's not a liptard, so to speak, in his own words. But, but there's also something more insidious about that is that the constitution was, was promulgated to stop state censorship. But okay, the state is a bit, is worrying me with this new racism legislation they want to put up. But, and, and the SABC. Yeah, but that was always, that was always, that was always a fuck. Always up. a government issue. Yeah, no, it, it's reached its final form and people are fucking surprised. <laughs> Get over it. Anyway, um, but what's more insidious is, is censorship from other members of society that yep. you live in, especially on social media. <clears throat> and there's nothing really to protect against that, in a way, uh, unless you use maybe defamation laws if it's, if you really want to, but there's nothing really to protect you from just a mob telling you that you're racist for misrepresenting your argument. So I think what we need to do is you want to change the way the discourse happens in, in the public. So like I talked earlier about having a charitable approach, it's important for us to sort of grow thicker skin um, to to realize, to internalize how important that value of free speech is. So even though I don't like being called this or you don't like that I've said this, we need to be a bit more accommodating with each other. And that's one way to sort of deal with the social media mobs uh, is trying to inculcate these values. I think it's important for for liberal voices in particular to speak out and point out how important these principles are. And I think we're at an interesting time at the moment. So when Max Price cowardly um, 
with, withdrew the invitation to the, you know, the cultural editor of Yildon's Postons. Um, you know, he sort of did it in this weaselly way. So he starts by saying, you know, the university cares about academic freedom and we care about, um, you know, free speech. And he cites a little bit from the constitution. And, you know, then he says, well, because we think there's a threat of violence, um, we're not going to allow it. And because this guy has been called a homophobe or an Islamophobe, you know, even though that's a contested idea, we don't think we should have one on our campus. And so what you have is wonderful liberal thinkers like David Benatar saying, hold on a second here. The, the threat of violence is not coming from him. He's not going to incite anyone to cause violence. We are being held hostage by others who are threatening violence against us. We're giving them the assassin's veto. Mm-hmm. If they don't like anything that we do, they, all they have to do is threaten violence. And so if you allow a culture like that, anything can be shut down. That's not what's enshrined in our constitution. It's important to stand up against those guys. And so when Benatar speaks, he's then joined by other members of the philosophy department, brave people like Eliza Gulgut, who also point out this isn't the only thing that's happening in UCT. So you've got an art censorship committee. They've taken down 79 works of art that are around campus on the grounds that they might hurt people's feelings. You've got people burning works of art on the campus. It's mm. important for people to realize that this horrible stuff is happening, that the space for free speech is vanishing rapidly. Mm. And unfortunately, it's happening in the places where it ought to be burning the brightest. You know, instead of burning paintings, you should be burning, you know, people should think of ideas in a bright way. And our campuses have become these awful places where people are frightened. They're, you know, they're well, full of fear. Why, why do you think it is that, you know, you've got, you, you mentioned some names in the philosophy department who have, quite frankly, been the only bright light at UCT for some time now. Um, but the rest of the departments seem to cap- just capitulate. The entire executive and council or senate, um, in fact, the committee that invited Fleming Rose, uh, the chair of that committee, uh, who's Jacques Rousseau, uh, who wrote a piece on this, uh, isn't uh, seemingly brave enough to stand up to his vice chancellor and say, uh, "This is bullshit. Stop doing this. Stop censoring. We're going to have this." I mean, it's it, the vice chancellor of a university is not the be all and end all. A university is a relatively democratic uh, space. I, don't, I cannot understand why it's just so accepted. It's become an accepted norm. This sort of limitation, what you're talking about in terms of taking down art, uh, these things are 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 becoming the norm, the habit of our society in which you're just not allowed to say certain things. And if you object or, or say anything, you you are so f- in fear of being shunned um, that most people just, just don't. And, and so liberals, um, who, are, for example, I think Jacques at heart is, um, are acting very illiberal. So I'll give you an interesting take. So UCT, the Senate took a vote um, – on whether or not to remove the statue of Rhodes. Yeah. So 100 senators vote, 99 votes in favor of removal, and one abstains. Yeah. I discussed with the Gad said, actually. So I said to Jacques, um, oh, who's the, who's the guy who abstained? And uh, he refused to tell me. And I said, why? Why would you tell me? He said, well, if it was known, that person would be hounded. Um, they would be torn to pieces by, by the rest of the people on campus. So now that tells me something very important which is that the 99 who supposedly voted freely were not free to vote. It's a coercive environment. I mean, there's many reports of yeah, you know, bottles being thrown of, in the meeting. If going against the grain, then… You you know, there's another great example of 99% of people voting for something. It was the Anschluss in, uh, in, uh, in Austria when Hitler marched in. 99% of people voted for it. You know, um, We must be very suspicious when there are s- small degrees of dissent, yeah. um, that it's, it's so unlikely uh, that everyone agreed. Mm. Um, it's much more likely that there's something else going on. 
Um, so it's important to have dissenters on campus. You know, I, I think when we talk about diversity on campus, we think about diversity of race or gender. We should think about diversity of ideas. <laughs> yeah, well, I, actually, that's the only diversity, in my opinion, that ultimately matters. Well, you must you must read Jonathan Haidt on this. Uh, do you know Jonathan Haidt, Mark? No. He's a he's a he's a philosopher um, in NYU, I think, and he talks about diversity on campus as well. And he wrote a great book called The Righteous Mind, which I, I highly recommend that you read. And he says, yeah, I mean, if you look at, at at the the ratio of conservatives to liberals in the U.S. in in social sciences and the humanities, it was four or five to one twenty years ago. Now it's 10, 12 to 1. 12 liberals for every conservative. In, and also liberal in, means something very different in the States. Right, it's the progressive left, the yes. Bernie yeah, Sanders. Yeah, liberal is not classical liberal. No, yeah. it's, it's the progressive, right? It's the Bernie Sanders um, voters. <clears throat> but but here we're obsessed with race quotas, but not uh, ideological quotas. Sure, yeah. I mean, Thomas Sowell, who's a black guy, probably one of the most brilliant conservative, classically liberal minds in the world. Yet he's black, so I mean, he will fall a, a, a racial quota, but ideologically he's, he's different from it's 90% of It's an amazing thing that just because you happen to have a certain color skin that you don't think a particular way. How all dare right, you say all that? All right, so let's, let's, uh, we've still got to get to the equality court, but let's get into the, the, the sort of stuff that happened to you recently on that point, because, sure. uh, you go down to Grahamstown. Yes, yeah, so, uh, um, Grahamstown has this incredible arts festival, um, and in addition to all the, you know, the beautiful music and dance and drama, they have something else called ThinkFest. Um, and so ThinkFest is run by someone called Anthea Garman. Uh, she's a, a journalism lecturer at Rhodes, and they have a series of different topics, and they have panel discussions. And the idea is that it's a place for curious members of the public um, to engage with these ideas. And so I went to a particular talk um, on free education. You now, free education is a burning concern for us. I, I went to another talk this morning uh, with Jonathan Janssen on it, um, we clearly have some sort of crisis and we need to decide is free education financially viable? Can we afford it? If so, where are we going to raise the money from? Um, is, you know, should we, should it be for everyone? Should it only be for the poor? You know, if we have free education, aren't isn't a bit of a soft to wealthy students that could afford to be there on their own? Um, from what I gather, the estimates on what it would cost would be something like 150 billion rand that, um, we can do free education. We just can't keep the quality. So, sure, you, that so you can you can do free education, free tertiary education, and you can just drop the quality to crap. And it'll be worth and exactly then, what you paid then, for it. Exactly. So, so, but yeah, carry on. So anyway, so I went to this talk, um, and uh, the, the panel is sort of stacked with guys on on the far left um, who you know who don't want a reasoned discourse about you know how, how we're going to pay for this or where's the money going to come from or acknowledging that there are trade offs. Um, and so I you know paused to ask a question. Um, and you, you can listen to what happened. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to play you the entire segment now um, of that discussion. And then when it's done, we'll come back and, and talk about it. Yeah. And try not to vomit, please. Yeah. I'd like to ask two brief questions. Uh, Your name, sorry. It's Mark Oppenheimer. Uh, hi. Uh, the first is, yes, from, from the Oppenheimer family, uh, who oppressed most of the people in this room. Probably. I don't think so, yeah, but I just speak. Oh. You, you, you do not have a right to speak. 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 And you will not, you will not speak. 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 You are not going to speak. Put the mic, keep the mic, you're not going to speak. Your presence, your presence here. I'm sorry that's you, Lindsay. 
Give that mic away. Leave the room if you're upset. Don't make me come over there. Give that mic. Give that mic over. Give that mic over. You won't speak. I promise you, you won't speak. You will not speak. You are not going to speak. You will respect us. You are not going to speak. You are not going to speak. We can do this all day if you want. Yeah, we can. You can tell people that we can do speak. it. We can do it all or we day. We can proceed. You're not going to proceed. I got, I got to a point. Sorry. Hello. Excuse me. Seriously. Yes, okay. Do you want to make a point? Do you want to say something? I think we have to respect the supreme law of the land, the constitution. Everyone has a right to speak and we will not, we cannot, we cannot allow a situation where someone is denied an opportunity to participate in a discussion. Uh, there's freedom of expression, freedom of thought, and therefore, judge, I think it is completely unacceptable to deny someone a right to participate in this discussion. Okay, wait. Can I interrupt? Yes. You want to say I'm just taking over, Dennis, if you okay. don't mind, for right. a moment. Okay. I, can I? Yes. All right. Okay. Look, you know, ultimately, ThinkFest is my responsibility. I'm the convener. The Legal Resources Centre has been a partner with us for many years, and we've tried to put on the agenda some very important conversations. Okay. What I do want to say is that I think we can't just do. The Constitution allows every single person to speak and say whatever they like. There are certain spaces in which that is possible, and there are certain times in which that is possible. We are not in one of those spaces right now, and we are not in one of those times. That's my opinion as the convener of ThinkFest. Which means? Which means that we can't just go because, because the way things are said has massive import. So what we are being told... I'm sorry, this is an intervention and I'm trying very hard to think quickly on my feet. What we are being told is that this is not just a white person with an opinion, this is not just a black person with an opinion. This is just not an activist with an opinion or a VC with an Our opinions are not equal here. They are embedded in our histories and in our exclusions and in our racist positions. Okay. So I think what we've got to do, whether this man speaks or he doesn't speak, what I'm trying to do is recognize what has been going on right now. Okay? And I think when white people speak, they take advantage of the fact that the Constitution allows them an extraordinarily huge amount of privilege to continue to obscure. Okay? Am I hearing this correctly? Okay. So I'm sorry, but it is the case that what you're going to have to do right now is own the fact that you tried to sidestep your name and what your name means in this space. Okay, so I just want to, I don't want to take over 
and stop the conversation. And I don't want to actually even make the decision because I don't know what the right decision is going well, forward. Is I just don't you, know what it is. Are you telling but me? I am sorry, saying. I, are you saying you want to close the entire conversation? No, 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 no. I'm not saying that. I'm going to throw it back to you. I'm going to throw it back to you to make the decision oh, because yeah, you are yeah. the chair of the session. Okay. But what I am saying is I want to recognise that actually the resort to the, the, the Constitution in which everybody has equal voice does not obtain in this moment, in this context, at this time. These voices have different weight, different histories, and there is a great deal of fraught contestation about who we are not. That is why, that is why this is on the brink. Okay. Right. Well, but if we recognize that, we might be able to go forward. Well, I agree with the Vice Chancellor's uh, position. Okay. But I'm going to. You see, sorry, can I just yes. say something? We've got a. I think this is reflective of precisely the difficulty yes. that we're encountering in South Africa yes. at this moment in time. Let's be all honest about this. There is a great deal of pain legitimately because of 300 years of racist rule. There is a sense in which white people, I'll be quite frank about it, use terms which they bandy around which only exacerbate hurt. I mean, I, but on the other hand, part of the point about speech is that people do say things which to a large degree we don't like. Okay. And if we're going to actually now start saying you can speak and you can't speak, where do we get to? You can't have a think fest. And so my own view about it is I, I, I thought what Mr. Oppenheimer had to say was most unfortunate, to be perfectly blunt, and only mm. makes it worse, worse. But on the other hand, on the other hand, he's got to have some right to say something. I don't know what he wants to say. No, no, and nobody's okay, going to give him a right to say But he's explicitly offending okay, that wait, 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 Can wait, I wait, ask wait, you wait, this? Wait, 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 How do you know what he's going to say? He may agree with you. Hold on, guys. Okay, 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 okay. But do you accept Let's hear from Lindsay. Let's hear from Lindsay. Hang on a moment. I'm chairing this. You aren't. Whoa. I would like to. Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen. I think it would be utterly unsatisfactory to end it on this basis. And I think I, so I'm going to give you an opportunity to say what you want to say. And I'm going to hopefully, hopefully, there are other people who want to speak. I can see, and I will give you a chance, but I really think it would be, uh, to actually just walk away now is just not good enough, yeah. yes. right? We've got to sort this country's mess out, and you don't do it by simply walking away. And I'm not going to walk away, right? So, yes, please. So, I want us to understand something very, something very beautiful is happening right now. It seems like we only have two options. Yes, yes, thank you for saying that, one. And the one option that we do have is to throw around things that safeguard the status quo. And the status quo is anti-black at a constitutional level in terms of the land and in terms of this person sitting here. So it means this, that no matter what we say, it is reduced 
to an unfortunate set of words that were used. It's his whole existence. His whole existence. It, it plays out black oppression. It plays out... That is your white privilege that gives you opportunity to, to interrupt me. Now you wait. It's 2016. I am. I will, I will finish. But I will not be stopped. Thank you. Now, now, now we have a, we have a, it comes to a point here. Nice, it's a nice moment in history, 2016. It's good to be alive. You see, for all our lives, when people like you use your white privilege, why your white power, and use circumstances to still be allowed to speak. 2016. Know this. It's done. It's, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen before this. It's done. Your time is up. You must accept it. It's odd. I know. This is what it means to decolonize. The norms of society that give you privilege are done. We are coming for your land. It's done. And your voice right now will not be heard in the space because you are violent. I'm done. All right, so that's quite the clip. Um, just uh, just explain the voices that sort of would have been heard there for people who weren't there or, or don't know more about the situation. So Judge Dennis Davis was um, chairing the panel, and he's the one who asked me for my name. Um, Lindsay Marsdorp, who's a representative of Black First Land First, uh, is the person you can hear shouting me down for about a minute and a half. Um, and then Anthea Garman is the convener of ThinkFest, um, who takes this this very bewildering line that the constitution doesn't pertain in this space. Uh, and this space, of course, is a university setting um, called ThinkFest, where it's meant to be about interrogating ideas. Um, and so as uncomfortable as it was to have Lindsay shout me down like that and to take quite a, uh, a radical stance on, on many issues. Um, so a few days after this incident, um, the Dallas shooter and went and, and shot a whole bunch of white police officers specifically to kill white police officers and was then himself killed. Um, Lindsay released a statement saying that we must recognize this man as a martyr, a glorious martyr for our cause, and that it's not enough uh, to moralize and immediately to speak about racial injustice. You need to do something like this brave hero, and that for the next month they plan on um, starting off with a, a dedication to him because they see him as this this righteous entity. Mm. So you're kind of talking about someone who, you know, has a lot in common with jihadists. Mm. Um, so as worrying as that is, what worries me more is someone like Anthea Garman who lectures journalism, who, funnily enough, um, signed a statement condemning um, the firing of SABC journalists. And in that statement, <laughs> she talks about how dangerous it is to shut down democratic debate, to shut down free speech. Um, and, you know, and the statement says that it's important for people not to be silenced and for them to think in terms of constitutional norms like free speech. So, you know, you're talking about someone who's clearly conflicted um, when it comes to the values of the Constitution and thinks they pertain in some spaces and on others. Yeah. Uh, and that's not how the Constitution works. Yeah. Uh, the Constitution operates with everyone inside the country, citizen and non-citizen. So you stand up, you make, you make a tongue-in-cheek joke, basically. Um, you have no relation to those Oppenheimers or uh, the, 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 those ones, the mining ones, or do you? So um, I get asked this on a regular basis. I think from, you know, it's a sort of question that I've, uh, I, I get so often that I have a little card that I print. So when someone asks me the question, I hand them the card. Um, and the question says, are you related to Oppenheimers? And it says, no, they're related to me. 
<laughs> Wonderful. All right. So, but regardless, it doesn't mean you have any less right whether you are literally the son of the the, the sort of patriarch or or or, or not. Sure. And, and there's an ambiguity in what's said in that statement. So I could have been someone like Sarah Godsall. Okay. Mm-hmm. So her father's Bobby Godsall, um, incredibly wealthy guy uh, involved in mining, uh, and she could have started off by saying, "Well, yes, of that Godsall family," and. You know, if given the chance, would have went on to eviscerate herself and say how guilty she feels about her whiteness and her wealth, and how she wrote a very famous yeah, poem she's not about giving any of it up. But she's very guilty, very yeah. guilty. Um, well, funny enough, so Ivo Fector wrote recently about an incident that he was involved in. It's an unbelievably um, important piece um, entitled "The Death of Racial Reconciliation." Yeah, I think it's one of the pieces of the year, actually, without a doubt. Uh, absolutely superb. Yeah, I've read it numerous times. Yeah, and he says a, a couple of prescient things. One of the things that so Sarah says, you know, when asked, you know, do you think the gods shall give up their property? She says, yes, undoubtedly. Um, and the person from Moses Four says, that's not good enough because psychologically, I want the pleasure of taking it from you. Yeah. So, and she writes this poem about, you know, her, her white flesh should be stripped from her, her white bones should be ground to dust. So, you know, someone who's filled with a lot of self-loathing. Mm. And so, you know, maybe that's where my, my comment could have been read like that. If I'd been asked, what do you mean by that? We could have had a discussion yeah. and we wouldn't have had to have this. You, you, know. you never get to ask your question in the end. What was your question? So my question's a technical question. Um, so given that Judge Davis heads up uh, the tax commission, uh, that he's, he's aware of the budgetary constraints that we have in the country. Uh, he projects that in order to have total free tertiary education, we need to have 150 billion rand a year. Now he says, let's say we took radical measures. We push up, um, the highest tax rate from 40% to 55%. We push up, um, company tax from 29% to 40%. Okay. He says, that's going to raise you 12 billion rand. Okay. <laughs> You're still very short. Where's the rest of the money coming from? So my question would have been to address that, to say, well, would you, how much would you want to allocate to, to higher education? Where are you going to take it from? So are we going to, you know, we're going to take, take money from our hospitals. We've got people dying in hospital beds. Do we let more people die in hospital beds? Do we take people's, you know, free housing away? Um, do we defund the police? Um, do we defund the public, you know, um, public wage bill, you know, and so that, you know, the civil servants are getting paid quite well. You know, should we take some money from them? Because taxation is only anywhere gonna, close to the 150 billion. Yeah. So this is something that has to be faced. The other question would have been to the vice chancellor to say, well, what measures are currently being taken to assist poor students? Because there's this idea that no one gets to go to university for free, which is just not the case. So if you earn under a certain, if your family earns under a certain threshold, you get to go to university for free. Um, and there are, you know, merit scholarships and needs-based scholarships. Universities do a lot to assist those that, that don't have. Mm. And it's this sort of excluded so, middle. So does the private sector as well. There are several um, sort of private uh, funds and scholarships, uh, bursaries, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. So my question would have been that sort of technical question. And I think it's a question that people shy away from. They don't like to talk about numbers. They don't want to be specific. Mm. But it's the question that ultimately has to be grappled with. Mm. Um, because if you care about something like education, which which I care very deeply about, and it is one of those things that when you invest in people by giving them a good quality education, not a crap you know, you know, print, printed home degree, uh, they're able to generate a lot of wealth. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. That wealth can trickle down to their families and to their dependents. Uh, so it is worth doing, but you have to do this costing analysis. And so that's the question I don't get to ask. So, I mean, based on that clip, <clears throat> is it any wonder that journalism is such a fuck up as it is now? If you've got people like Andrea teaching it, 
who don't understand the fundamentals of, of the Constitution, first, the legal framework under which we live. She doesn't understand about uh, the universal principle of law of general application. You know, a law applies to everyone. And thirdly, it's it's a social justice bullshit, right? And then we wonder why we got, <coughs> excuse me, think pieces in the Mail and Guardian about, but utter nonsense. But I mean, journalism has become a huge opinion piece. It's a huge circle jerk of people who are very self-important and who believe that they are correct well, they, about things. They, they, it's what I've said before, which is instead of reporting on the news, they create the news. Well, they become the news. And then we got fucking famous well not famous we got um celebrities who are journalists right um, because they write very wittily so i think there's probably there's another there's a whole bunch of reasons for why we have the state of affairs one of which is that to do investigative journalism costs money so you've got to go and send reporters out to gather facts to be on the ground it's it's much cheaper to have someone sit behind their laptop and spout opinion mm. so you know we've we've moved in this direction globally so you're finding you know Slate, generally, if you look at it as, you know, as a publication that generally runs opinion pieces, you know, you have someone else do the news coverage and then you go and write about what it means. Yeah, but the New York Times is also filled with this garbage. Sure. Um, and, and still referred to as some sort of doyen of, of, of journalism. And frankly, uh, there's a whole bunch of rubbish in there. Well, it's become hard to make a buck as a, as a, and as a publication. Sure. So because, because news is free, no one wants to pay for news. Um, it's going to change the kind of news that you get access to. Mm. So that's a concern. I think also that, Regressives have done an amazing job of capturing these institutions. So think about something like the Daily Maverick. Okay, when it launches, you know, it's, it's meant to be for those that... Well, let me give you their exact launch statement. The exact launch statement was for people with <coughs> money and brains. That was their logo slash motto. Uh, I know this because I was around at the time. I was very interested in the Daily Maverick. I thought it was a great idea. I found the people contributing to it uh, to be enlightening. Um, and I uh, got very involved, tried to get very involved with it, uh, attended their first gathering, that type of stuff. And that, that was who they were selling to. Uh, and then at some point… So the slogan has changed to people with no money and no brains. <laughs> basically, yeah, but I don't think they'll admit that. But, but, but at some point it gets hijacked. The entire sort of system gets hijacked and now we have essentially what was probably could have become the first kind of conservative um, well, classically liberal. Well, yeah, I, 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 I use conservative in the same way someone like Franz Cronier would use conservative, right? Um, in, in a positive sense, um, the kind of publication it, it, it's essentially become a very left-leaning one. I mean, uh, you mentioned Abba Vector; he is essentially the only guy left there who seems to write sense. Oh, uh, sorry, Justin as well yeah. has, a, has a column occasionally, but it becomes more insidious because the Daily Maverick have the gathering, the Daily Maverick gathering, and it's one of the premier events where politicians and uh, you know people in the public sphere can actually meet private individuals and talk things about things publicly the problem is not them but the problem is that the, the interviewer on the other side they are all inherently insipid all of them they are journalists um but they don't know anything about policy or externalities of policy or anything like that. So they can kiss Julius, my name is Ars, for 20 minutes, but you won't get anything of value from it well, because the interviewers don't know anything. That's the problem. They know the inner machinations and who's fighting with who and who's fucking who in the ANC, but they have no idea what the, the, the basic <clears throat> economics works, the consequences of minimum wage or something like that. And they keep inviting fucking Zuelanzi Mavavi, like the worst, 
person in the world who's never done anything right. Every prediction he's made and every person he supports has fucked him over. And he keeps getting invited. It's not only a South African problem. So you see it happening in the States. If you look at the current election cycle, you know, you've got a candidate like Trump who has no policy positions and is not being called out for it. Well, they change every five minutes. There are policies. There's some they, policy they, they, they positions that they do change. Five times sure, a day. <laughs> sure. Uh, and or if, if their policies, they're on, they're very narrow. So, um, if as a woman you get an abortion, you should be locked up and then you shouldn't, you know, um, or we should build a massive wall. But, you know, it's basically like whatever policy you can think of, I'll, I'll, it'll be amazing. It'll it's be the fantastic. best. You know? yeah. yeah. It'll be great. Uh, I can't, I can't do that. And, and he's, you know, he's, he's good at getting away with this because you don't have journalists, you know, taking to task. So I'm hoping that, you know, in the election debates, in the general election, you're going to find, you know, someone strong saying, hold on a sec, you haven't answered my question. You haven't, you haven't given us any detail here. And you can point out the foolish in that manner. And that's a concern. If you don't have robust journalism, you know, you allow uh, maniacs to, you know, to run rampant. Okay. So getting back to kind of you, you, this happens. That's the clip that everyone heard. Um, it goes on for quite a bit. Uh, you subsequently don't get to ask your question. Um, the poll thing ends at some point. So what happens is during the conversation, the mic gets taken from me. Um, eventually a few questions are allowed and then it wraps up. And I, I had a, a strong sense of fear at the time. I thought, you know, this, this crowd of people around me may very well lynch me. And, uh, so I wrote a, wrote an article about it for two publications. The one is the rational standard. Um, which is a publication that's run by a bunch of youngsters. Well, well that is our only conservative publication. Sure. Yeah. I mean, they're, you know, they're libertarians. They're, you know, avowedly care about in bioplot freedom uh, and take that stance. And then politics web syndicated the article. And so when I write, when I wrote the article, it's the politics web one is called, you don't have the right to speak. Um, I, I take an extract from another publication that wrote about the event, a publication called black opinion. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in that piece, Firstly, they call uh, the vice chancellor House Negro. They say that uh, you're talking about Jonathan Johnson. No, this was uh, the vice chancellor of Rhodes, uh, Dr. Mabusela. Oh, yes. Uh, who speaks up, you know, very favorably in, in favor of uh, free speech. Mm. And um, so they say, when the race war comes, it'll be blacks like this who are standing in front of their white masters, saying, "Please don't kill master. We must be wary of these blacks." They call Dennis Davis um, a, a, a white liberal racist. Uh, and then they say that Oppenheimer should have been shambocked by the crowd, and it's a great injustice that the crowd was too meek to have inflicted that upon him. He should have been attacked and brutalized. Who, who wrote this or who said this? Uh, the, the, the site is called blackopinion.coza, okay. uh, and so I have a link to it in the article. So now on some level, well, this is an interesting moment for me. So I you know, gave this earlier example about uh, the kinds of speech that ought to be allowed. So as a liberal, I'll say that I will fight to the death for your right to disagree with me. And as much as I don't like this comment being said about me, for it to be said in that forum, in other words, um, on a website, perfectly acceptable to my mind. Mm. It would have been different if it had been shouted out in that in that audience, in that moment. and the and the mob had risen so, up. So if, added, if we'd added to that sort of what uh, Marstall was saying, if you just added "let's shambok him," that would have been problematic. That would have been an incitement to violence right there. Sure, sure. And, and that would be, let's not use the word problematic, uh, that, that would be a, 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 pro, a, or, a huge issue. Or unlawful, and, and right? Unlawful. Would be unlawful. It would be, that's an example of non-protected speech. But here what you have is a, is a call for violence, yeah. but a call for violence of an event that's already passed. So what yeah. they're saying is you ought to have reacted like so, this. So, so they should be able to say that? 
Sure. There's an argument that you might say, in other words, when this event arises again, the implicit assumption is that's when you start, you whip out your shambok and you start beating people. But, but isn't this the sort of discussion Ramon and I've had before, which is, you know, if you're a free speech absolutist, and I, I've said where I, the caveats to my feeling on this is, unless you're standing in front of the baying mob, mm. um, then say whatever you like. Even saying, you know, we should be violent um, to a thing that hasn't happened yet, might happen, might not happen. People have a lot of time. I mean, that essentially almost becomes premeditated. If you attend an event in a year's time and people shambok you, that means that they have been premeditating that thought. And, you know, if they were to murder you, that would be premeditated murder. That's on the, the individual responsibility. And you could punish that. I also think so the imminency is taken out of the situation. You know, mm. that there's, you know, when it's, there's no threat of imminent violence when it's written on a website. Mm. So that's why I'm, you know, I'm okay with the speech being out there. And there's a reason also why I quote that in my article. Mm. I want people to know what views are out there. Yeah. And, you know, you can, you can shine, um, some reason on people can look and go, wow, that's terrifying. That's something we need to be aware of. Yeah. So, so with regards to, cause I'm, this got thrown in my face recently, the Rwanda example, uh, and you'd mentioned it a little bit earlier. Um, the initial sort of thing that goes, you know, kill all, I can't remember if it was Tutsis, Hutus, um, but kill all of these people. Um, the initial thing that's allowed, not allowed. Um, so I think when I think, it becomes viol- actually violent or it sees, you see people reacting to it, you stop it then. Where's the sort of line there? So it's, it's a hard question to answer because we know it occurred. So, but what you might find is that once it becomes evident that people are acting on the speech and that you don't have a justice system that's operating that's going to stop those people. So you can say, well, look, in an ideal democratic society with the functioning state, when people, you know, act violently, well, then we send in the police. But if you don't have that, you know, if your state is failing and you've got someone on the radio calling for the death of neighbors, to my mind, it seems perfectly legitimate to go and block those radio signals because those radio signals are playing a direct role uh, in the deaths of a million people. For which you're not going to be able to do anything about. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because because that's the thing. Because uh, after the Dallas shooting of the cops, a lot of Black Lives Matter supporters on Twitter were saying, yeah, one dead pig is is fantastic. They should have killed more. Next time you see a pig, shoot him in the face. They even had a, a, a protest in the middle of the street. It was pigs in a blanket uh, smoking like bacon or something. Something about but, pigs and police. Yeah. But the thing is, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's true. Does, does the U.S. have a hate speech provision? So America, America wouldn't have the kind of thing that we – the limitation that we have. Right. Um, there's a very famous case uh, in the States um, about a little town in, in Illinois called Skokie. And uh, a group of Nazis decide they're going to have a rally in Skokie. And Skokie is a, a town with a small number of Jews in it, uh, some of whom are Holocaust survivors. And uh, – they object to having this march. It's incredibly insensitive and hurtful and painful for them to see guys carrying swastikas in their town, and they feel threatened by it. And the question becomes, should they be allowed to march? Hmm. And so the Supreme Court of Appeal adjudicates on the matter and says, yes. They should be allowed. Let these guys march. They are hateful, repugnant. These are some of the worst members of society, but let them march so we can, we can look at that and we can see them. Um, and as much as it will cause offense and discomfort and emotional hurt, hmm. there's going to be no physical violence. Hmm. There's going to be no financial harm uh, at the moment at which any of these guys start attacking you know, a synagogue or doing anything like that. Then you can constrain them. Yeah. And so that's the line that America has taken. And that's the maturity I was talking about earlier. Um, 
just on the, on the false sort of equivalency that that that's I just remember where that example came from. Um, someone had said, you know, that it was excellent. Milo had been banned from Twitter because he's um, if I if I just read it for you exactly, um, he was being downright abusive. Um, this with regards to Leslie Jones, I think it was. Um, and I said that words can't hurt you. Um, and someone else sort of responded. Um, you know, yes, they can, and I, well, words are bad or something, and I replied to this effect of, you know, definitely words are wanted by the Hague for crimes against humanity. Um, they, 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 they met, then they brought out the example, oh, yeah, but, you know, war crimes start with words, you know, like Rwanda. So that was the, the example. I just, it's, it's, it's unfortunate the reasoning and the poor logic that gets us to that kind of point from somewhere completely different. So that's why it's important for us to be clear about what we mean when we talk about hateful speech and hate speech. So that hate speech that is going to incite violence mm. is dangerous. And I think there are good reasons to stop that kind of speech. Mm. The problem is when we conflate the two. Mm. So, so, so the equality court, we've conflated the two, no? So this is what's interesting about the legislation is so it, it's enlarged the ambit dramatically. So it talks about hurtful speech. It enlarges the number of categories um, that could be targeted. So it imports those from Section 9, the equality section of uh, the Constitution. So it includes um, disability, pregnancy, um, age, um, sexual orientation. And so there's an interesting moral debate to be had about whether those are things that ought to be given protection in addition to race, ethnicity, and religion. Um, but the Constitution is pretty clear. It limits it to those four grounds. But the legislation itself says that you know, speech will be allowed – uh, and it makes reference to Section 16 of the Constitution about free speech. So it's sort of there's an inherent contradiction in the legislation mm. itself. Never been challenged, of course. It hasn't been, and I think it's ripe for challenge. Um, I think it's important that people test these things out. So if you look at what happens with Penny Sparrow, um, she's fined 150,000 rand. Um, it's done in via default judgment process because she doesn't go and defend the matter. So no counter-argument is given. One of the reasons that she says is that no one was willing to defend her. So... This is the concern. So there's, there was a, there's a famous case about a baby that was raped in Utenhag. The play Tsapung is based on this true fact. And uh, six guys were rounded up and arrested for it. And um, the papers in the newspaper, the pictures are in the newspaper, and everyone says, look at these guys. They look like rapists, scum of the earth. And no one wants to defend them. And someone steps forward and says, I think everyone is entitled to uh, you know, due, due process. Which is of the law. Yeah. And so he steps forward and he says, I will, I will risk my status in the new community and I will defend you. Um, and in the defense, it turns out that they did a little bit of DNA testing. It wasn't these guys. Innocent. Hmm. So this is the danger that when people aren't given access to a fair trial and no one wants to stand up for those that are viewed by society as despicable, we don't get to just results. Now, I don't want to in- endorse the content of what Penny Sparrow is saying, but it would be nice for that kind of, that idea to be tested in the court. And I think it's important for our constitutional court to look at what are the limits of free speech. You know, um, is something like the Equality Act going too far on the the dignity side as opposed to the freedom side? Mm. Um, and so have some good jurisprudence come out of it. In terms of I, – I, I hate digging up Penny Sparrow. But in terms of what she said, if we just go to the constitution, it doesn't violate any one of those things you listed. As far as I can tell. So here's a, here's please, a, she's, she's such please a, don't take that out of context to mean I agree with what she said. Yes. So this is, this is the interesting thing. Why people find liberalism such a strange view is so I said earlier that, you know, I will fight to the death for your right to disagree with me. People say, but that's bizarre. How could you, how could you want to allow someone a space to say ideas that are different to yours? 
because we care about principles, right? So we don't have to endorse the content of speech to think that free mm. speech is important. You know, part of why we think that free speech is important is that it allows all these ideas that we disagree with, these, you know, supposedly repugnant ideas, um, to be expressed. And maybe it turns out when people say, you know, we ought to b- abolish slavery, people say, that's a repugnant idea. We've had slavery for, for generations. How can you dare say something like that? Mm. Or you let's know? allow gay marriage. How can you yes. allow that marriage isn't between a man and a woman? Exactly. It's disgusting. It's an offensive idea to express. So that's why it's important for us to say, hey, maybe we, maybe we're sometimes mistaken about the true state of moral <laughs> affairs. Let's debate this in the marketplace. So, all right, so what Penny Sparrow says is um, black people are like monkeys. Okay, So it's a racist trope, um, and she sort of says, you know, they've littered this beach, um, and she expresses this this hateful idea. How someone responds to it is interesting. So there's a guy, Velapi, who says, we need to rise up and do to white people what Hitler did to the Jews. Okay, So here's this amazing example where you get to test out hate speech and hateful speech. So you've got a call to action here. He's saying, let's have a white genocide. Let's go out and exterminate these people. It's very clear what he's saying. Mm. So, and for whatever reason, for, you know, you don't have the same level of outcry. You know, Vilapi's name is not mentioned when we talk about, no, I, you know, racism. I remember the incident. I didn't even remember the name. No, Vilapi Kumalo, he, he got suspended from the ANC, by the way. Okay. So, so they so, did Some act. action was taken. Good for them. But, but yes, but that's actually a good point. So, so Penny was hateful speech. Mm. Velapi was hate speech. Yes. I mean, that's the difference. It's a, it's a call to action to do an act that harms others. Whereas Penny is just bigotry, really. If, if you sure. put it that way. I, she, I like she to think of it as it's, yeah, exterminate it's, the monkeys, right? She exactly. didn't say anything like that. It's also, it's tiny racism, right? So when you hear her explanations for it, she sort of says, Oh, I don't hate black people, and you know, like I, I, love, mean, I love monkeys. Yeah, they, and I meant it in a cute fruits. way, and, yeah. and, and call children monkeys and things yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. she's clearly not a person. She's not. She's not Adolf Hitler, right? No. You know. So, and she's been made out to be that way. So that's why that charitable approach is important to say, hold on a sec, that's pretty offensive. I feel hurt by what you've said, but explain it a bit more. Yeah. You know? Or you can advise someone like, just be aware of what you're saying. That's very different to saying, "Thou shalt not speak ever." You know. Um, and what we've, we've created this climate of absolute fear. So someone like Sapiro draws on this quite old trope. Um, and I understand why people are unaware of the trope because it's a, uh, when is the last time you were walking down the streets and you saw, saw an and saw an organ grinder and a monkey, right? It's, you know, it, it's an old thing. Cartoonists have been using it. Um, there's, there was a contemporaneous cartoon with Donald Trump, um, playing the organ and the media as the monkey. Um, you know, I get that the thing has a different symbolic meaning here, but if people had paused and said, what do you mean by the Sapiro? He wouldn't have said, oh, I, I want to say that all black people are monkeys because I've shown Sean Abrams as, you know, as a monkey and I think all monkeys ought to be exterminated. He'd say, well, this is the meaning of the symbol that I've used and it's about a power relationship and a control and how the NPA is being controlled by Zuma. An important statement out there, that's, you know. And of course, instead of talking about, you know, the lack of independence of the NPA, we end up talking about, you know, racist speech. Is, and, it, is it the correct metaphor to use knowing very well that it could be deemed racist. Like that's what people are asking. It's, it's like, all this it's thing about sensitivities, right? you know? Right. Who gives a shit about sensitivities? You don't have a, it's a whole, you don't have a right not to be offended. Like, yeah. you, so if you're sensitive about something, be sensitive about something. That's nice. Um, you know, then, then you censor yourself. Don't read something that you might find offensive. Don't look at stuff. Block yourself off from those things. Sure. Well, you, you can alert people to the fact that I find this offensive, but so Gareth Ronslin wrote this fantastic piece a couple of weeks ago where he, 
because he's such a great researcher, you know, he'll trawl through publications over the last 15 years and show incidences where politicians have used animal traps. So he cites the 10 best animal traps and where people have been called snakes and hyenas and monkeys and baboons, you know, from different racial spectrums, from different political parties. You know, it's, it's part of the metaphorical language that is used in our country and around the world mm. by, you know, referring to someone like an animal. So, you know, to say there's a history of people being called like an animal and it sort of makes them subhuman, yeah. it's context-dependent, you know, but, it's but important him, to look but at But even in, in, in local context, right, I think in Zulu, if you call someone a snake, like, it's, it means he's shifty, you know, don't sure. trust him. Like, it, it's, it's so indigenous Esk- as well. He talks about the series of ads that Eskom ran, um, talking about people that steal cables and they refer to them as snakes. Uh, yes, uh, what are they called? Um, there's a particular Izongna, anyway. Uh, yeah, member. But there, there's a term for them. Know what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, cable thieves. But sorry, Mark. Just to find. Okay, last two minutes. Bullshit. No, <laughs> we we'll well, go, um, we'll go on a little bit. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. I want to talk about about um, so-called Islamophobia in, in Europe, and just bear with me. So, so there is a lot of immigration into Europe now from from Syria, from Islamic countries, and <clears throat> a lot of people on the left and a lot of the politicians are saying. Um, you know, these people are, are refugees. Um, we can't not allow them in, especially in the EU. And a lot of people that say, well, we're a bit worried about Islam, especially political Islam, because it's not really, it clashes with, with our laws, right? Sharia law and child brides and whatever. <clears throat> Doesn't work very well. These people, killings. These people are shunned. You know, they call Islamophobes and racist and little Britons and whatever the case might be. So, so they are, Kept quiet by by the media and intellectuals and politicians. The problem with that is by silencing them and by by not allowing them to say that they are worried about immigration because it does. There are economic reasons why you should be wary of immigration as well, especially as a blue collar worker, of course. But by silencing them, you are giving a lot of power to the far right, so they're not going to express the displeasure in speech because they get shut down. But they will do so in voting. And who are they going to vote? They're going to vote for the mortal enemy of the very people who are censoring them. Who's, who's, only Marine Le Pen is saying, the jihadis are coming here and killing our priests in our churches. This is ridiculous. We must rise up and do something. No one else has said that. Um, but it's, it's of grave concern. I mean, you pointed out so well that when right. you suppress speech, <clears throat> what happens is that people's avenues for, for dissent, um, Get limited and they end up picking these far right candidates. Indeed. So guys, you know, guys that are supporting Trump feel like, you know, um, regressive movements aren't allowing us to say what we want. So let's, let's bring in someone who will bring some law and order, you know, so we'll vote for mm. Trump or we'll vote for Brexit, you know, um, and I think it's even more, it's, it speaks to that point around, uh, you know, Justin went into this, uh, Justin McCarthy went into this, um, in terms of polling. Uh, voting is a, a secret thing very often, uh, something very personal at least uh, to most people. Um, so I think what you're seeing as the Trump supporters in America isn't even the half of it. Uh, I think all the kind of people who've been shut down who actually don't really like Trump, uh, think he goes a step too far in many of his views, uh, are probably going to put an X next to his name. Um, for this exact reason. Yeah, but the, but the point I was trying to make, uh, which 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 flows from yours, is that by censoring people, you're giving them a lot of ammunition to use in various ways that you can't predict or see. So I think it's important if if you have this this space where you can express radical ideas in a forum, 
and they can be interrogated. Well, even personally, even reasonable ideas at sure. this moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, um, <laughs> so, you know, when someone says, you know, those immigrants are going to steal our jobs, right? What you want to be able to do is interrogate that idea properly and say, okay, instead of me just calling you a bigot, let's, let's have a look at the underlying assumption here. Let's look at the data. You know, so you can see that actually immigration is one of these things that's quite good for economies. You know, America is a nation founded upon immigrants. Yes. Mm. Um, that, um, my, my grandparents were refugees. They fled Nazi Germany. You know, they came here and they, you know, built up a life for themselves. Well, that does allow for the nuances though, uh, as well, because, you know, the statement that, uh, re- um, um, immigrants will steal our jobs, uh, has elements of truth to it. And uh, there's a quite a lot of falsity in there. Uh, but if you look at, uh, what's, you know, someone like Dan Hannon in, in the UK will, would have said with regards to immigration for Brexit is not that he's against immigration. He's against unfettered immigration. Um, they want to let in people who are going to contribute to their society. Um, and most countries do this. Most first world countries, you can't just walk into their country. That's why you have to send them all your sort of educational background, who you are, what you do, if you've got a criminal record, etc. Um, it, it makes sense to most people. Um, that yes, immigrants who are functioning members of a society are contributing members of a society. Whereas those who fundamentally hate what you stand for may very well not, uh, be good for you. So I think you can draw the following distinction. The first is on your general policy regarding immigration, which I think it makes sense to say we ought to be, uh, we should try and attract the best and the brightest and that you have very good reason to exclude those that hate your society and, you know, um, want to destroy it. But that's a particular kind of immigration policy for general situations. The other one is when you've got a refugee crisis. So when you've got people that are being massacred from both sides in Syria, when you've got, you know, um, ISIS killing them and you've got Assad killing them, mm. um, you know, these are people saying, we're not the radicals you are afraid of. Those are the guys who are killing us, you know, and we just need temporary refuge. Um, you know, people sort of think about, you know, you look at you look at Germany in 1939. You've got Jews that are being persecuted, and you've got nations closing their doors. People look at them and they say, "But, but how? How is that possible? How could we allow six million people to be exterminated? You know, how could people be so callous?" And now you face a similar situation. You just got a different group of people that are, you know, people are fearful of and hateful of. Mm. Um, and I think it's important to to recognize that you've got people that are under enormous pressure um, who could do with refuge. That they're not saying we want to join your country forever. We need it now because Syria is in massive crisis. And I think it's important on humanitarian grounds to take that into consideration. Absolutely. Um, and the problem is that the fear mongers um, are, are good at sort of saying, you know, don't allow these guys to come in and, you know, they're very dangerous. And, and of course you can have vetting procedures. It's important to sort of work out, well, we don't want, you know, ISIS agents, you know, slipping in amongst the refugees. But when you do a rational analysis of it, you find, well, actually it's easier for those guys to come in on a visa. You know, that's, it's a very dumb idea for them to try and smuggle themselves in with the refugees. Uh, the chances of getting caught in that process are much higher. Um, so, but what's important about having the free speech arena open is that we can discuss the ideas, um, and let's, let the truth sort of shine in. As soon as we silence and say, you can't say that, that's bigoted, that's hateful, and people just don't feel like they can express the idea, then we miss out on opportunities for getting good answers. Right, but, but but then we leave the door open for them to take actions in other other ways, exactly. i.e., voting for Donald Trump or Marine Le Pen or whoever. It becomes a, a cultural vote, not a policy vote, in a way. 
Sure. It becomes a vote that it's a protectionist vote, right? That's the real little Britain mentality. So I'll vote for someone who says these people are evil. I also think they're evil and I don't want my job uh, to be taken away from me to be given to someone who hasn't contributed their fair share or whatever. Sure. whatever. What's, what's interesting when you look at it, so immigrants don't tend to take jobs often. They tend to go and start their own businesses. So Indeed. and they end up employing people. Indeed. It depends on the immigrant though. Sure, sure. Yeah, Jews, I, I, Poles, Sikhs, Pakistanis, a lot of – they are stereotypes, of course, but these people do very well. Koreans Cambodians, do extremely well. Yeah. Cambodians, extremely well. Sure. Um, yeah. All right. And Just, they provide a richness of ideas as well. People come from their countries. They, you know, I mean, one of the reasons why America is such a wonderful place to be is because you've got these people from all these different contexts, you mm. know, bringing their ideas with them and, you know, the kind of this yeah. intellectual diversity. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree generally with that. I, I'm a little bit more protectionist on the sort of Syrian situation because I do think, as you say, the vetting, for example, is important. Um, the, I think it was that guy, the ex-murderer in Germany, the uh, guy who got on the train and, and, and butchered a whole bunch of people with an axe. And um, the machete guy um, who killed a pregnant woman, he was an asylum seeker who was rejected from Germany okay. but was not deported. He well, was, the ex guy, I think, was a Pakistani faking being an afghan oh right so okay. so you see this is this is the issue and and the problem is 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 when we sweep these things under the rug um it only sort of highlights the problem you only need one incident then to make the sort of fear mongers seem a hundred percent correct and and give them so much credibility when you know the, the middle road approach would be would be far far better i just i want to end off on a sort of Sort of high notes, um, because after that conversation where you weren't allowed to ask a question, uh, you were completely censored, shouted down, pretty aggressive sort of scenario and situation. Um, you then sort of went and spoke to everyone afterwards and just tell us a bit about that experience. So I thought it was important to, to have a conversation that's one on one, that's not in this grandstanding arena. So I went to Lindsay Marsdorp and I said to him, Lindsay, you and I aren't representatives of our races. We're individuals. We're human beings. And we can have a conversation. And I could see that the the fire in his eyes had sort of drained, that he wasn't in front of this crowd. He's an excellent orator. I mean, you sort of, you know, you can see the rhetoric sort of coming out of him. But one-on-one, much calmer guy. And we had a conversation. We, you know, we sort of debated ideas. We ended up having a glass of wine together. We shook hands, you know. Um, we didn't agree with each other. We didn't agree with each other. And that's okay. We don't exactly. have to agree with each other. Um you know, the vice chancellor came up to me and he held my hand and he apologized. And he said, I'm sorry, we couldn't have a free debate at Rhodes and this is a great shame. I had a long chat with um, Judge Davis and I had a long chat with Anthea Garman. And it's important to be able to do this. You know, one of the things that, that Ivo writes about so well is this reconciliation, this being able to take disparate groups, people with dif- different ideas and getting them to forgive each other and actuate towards each other and how we've lost that. And one of the things that he writes about so well, he says – He's going through university between 89 and 92. You can see that the country is on the edge of a race war. You can see that, you know, it's a precipice. There's, there's killings going on in KwaZulu. Um, there's an enormous amount of tension. And what, what the constitutional dispensation is about at the time is saying anyone who wants to participate in this process and building this new constitutional order can partake provided you agree to be peaceful. And you have this negotiated process and you wind up having this constitution that's built on reconciliation. And what's interesting is now that when people are part of that born free generation, they didn't see the transition. Mm. So 
I think that's why there's this disjunct with this current generation of guys at the university who say we were sold out. Um, you know, this constitution isn't worth anything. Mandela is a traitor. Um, they didn't see the risk that was faced. So you and I grew up at a time, you know, I was, I was 11, uh, in, you know, in 94. So it becomes a formative value for you, you know, to sort of say, this is important to forgive each other, to have a TRC where, you know, the truth comes out and we say, we don't like what you did, but we're not going to, you know, we're not going to execute you for it. It's a difficult thing for us to have. It's actually, when people talk about Ubuntu and African values, this is a very African value, this idea of, um, reconciliatory justice, of looking each other in the eye and saying, I don't like what you did. But we have to live together and we're going to need to make this work. And I think that's important. We need to have a space where we allow speech and we don't have to, you know, we don't have to shout each other down and silence each other just because we don't like what the other person has to have, what they have to say. Absolutely. I think the 94 consensus is worth fighting for. Um, as I said on Twitter numerous times, it's, it's, a, it's the founding principle of this country post 94. Don't let these privileged law race baiters, you know, destroy it for us. Mark, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been excellent. Can you be found? Do you want to be found? Social media? Um, so I don't have a Twitter account, um, but if you want to... Lucky uh, man. <laughs> um, if you want to read things that I've written, um, they're available on Politics Web. I've written for The Citizen as well. Um, a Mark Oppenheimer Google search um, will we'll lead you to another famous Mark Oppenheimer as a writer, but maybe I'll be found in the dregs somewhere. Found somewhere in there. And we'll link the article... Um, at the bottom with, on Twitter rather alright as usual you know where to find us on Twitter um, basically uh, you can like us on Facebook please follow us on Twitter at renegade underscore report uh, if you haven't yet subscribe to the podcast on iTunes you can also find it on Pocket Cast or on the Cliff Central app thank you so much for listening and we will chat to you next time Central. I've got something important to tell you. Cliffcentral.com.